You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we are three weeks into our study in the Gospel of John. We started with a intro week to the entire book, specifically looking at why John wrote this Gospel, especially if he wrote it after the other three. Why was there a need for another Gospel? And we said that Ultimately, the Gospel of John is a calculated recollection of Jesus's earthly life, with the purpose being to bring us to initial faith that grows us into a continual faith that ultimately can be described as life-changing faith. And so we saw that from John chapter 20, where ultimately John tells us why he wrote another Gospel, right? He says, I've written these things so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'll have life, right? And so he's, he's He's basically scaled down everything that he knows about Jesus, all this time that he's had with Jesus, all these experiences, these conversations, these late night conversations sitting by a fire uh, as they're traveling around and teaching and ministering. Like he, he basically tries to bring all of that down to a manageable amount of things for us to read and know about Jesus with a specific purpose. He says, I want you to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and, and I want you to have life that comes from believing in him. And so um, ultimately, the Gospel of John is meant to point us not just to initial faith, not just initially believing in him, but continually believing in him in a way that changes our life. And last week, we saw specifically from John 1, uh, 1 uh, that Jesus uh, and his deity is extremely important to our understanding of, of Jesus moving forward. And we said last week that as followers of Jesus Christ, placing our faith in him for salvation, it's imperative that we have a clear understanding of who Jesus is based on how he was revealed in the word. Because most false teachings, most false religions skew an understanding of Jesus away from what God's word says about him. And so we have to know what Jesus, uh, how Jesus is revealed in his word so that we don't deviate from that into some type of false teaching or false doctrine about him. And so last week I told you kind of a definition to remember about Jesus. He is God now revealed in human flesh. And I told you that that word now is really important because Jesus has not always been uh, in the form of a man right? He has always been God. He is eternally existent as God, but he came into being as a man in these gospels, right? He, he took on the form of a servant. He took on the form of a man. So his humanity does come into existence. He hasn't always been a man, but he does become a man, and now he will forever be a man moving forward. And so we said Jesus is God now revealed in human flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity, meaning he is a distinct person that is fully equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so we understand him to be the God-man. And we said last week that the Bible reveals Jesus as God, and we need to, re- we need to believe that. We see that in John 1.1, 1, 1, that the Bible declares Jesus to be God. Uh, Jesus presents himself as God, and we saw that as well. Kind of fast-forwarding into the Gospel of John, we see Jesus readily claiming to be God. And when people believe that that's what he's saying about himself, he doesn't try to correct them, right? And so when the Pharisees react and want to stone him and kill him because he's claiming to be God, he doesn't try to correct their understanding because they're understanding him correctly. He is claiming to be God. So not only does the Bible reveal Jesus as God, Jesus presents himself as God. And then we see at the very end of the gospel of John, people believing him to be God right? His disciples making those confessions, specifically Thomas making that confession at the very end of the gospel of John, where once he's able to put his hands uh, on Jesus's hands, he makes that confession, my Lord 
and my God. So not only does the Bible tell us that Jesus is God, not only does Jesus tell us that he is God, but others describe and define him and confess him as God as well. And so I told you application-wise last week that if we believe rightly about Jesus, then our lives must be patterned after his instructions. Because if he is our creator, he is our God, everything that he says matters. Um, And we have to do what he says because he has what we call creator rights over us. He's the creator, he's the maker of us, then we do what he says, okay? That leads us into uh, the rest of this section in John chapter one. So John one, one through five, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Our summary sentence for today, maybe the shortest that we've ever had. Jesus, who is God, is our ultimate source of deliverance from fear, darkness, and death. Jesus, who is God, and that's, that's why he's our ultimate source of deliverance. Because he's God, he is our ultimate source of deliverance from fear, darkness, and death. For our kids, Jesus rescues us from darkness by giving us life. That's who Jesus is. That's how he functions. That's why he came. He came to give us deliverance from fear, darkness, and death. We're going to see that today as we unpack John 1, 1 through 5. Ultimately, uh, in John's gospel here, he's wanting to tell us about our maker. He's wanting to tell us about our maker. And he uses this this descriptive word or or, uh, title for Jesus, calling him the word. Um, Very, very quickly here, identifying him as the word. Um, And we see the word connected to Jesus uh, down in verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so we know the word is referencing Jesus. It's an interesting way for uh, John to describe him, giving him this title, John calling Jesus the word. There's some ways that the original readers would have understood this, both from the the Greek side of things and the Jewish side of things. Uh, God's word is uh, very instrumental in the Old Testament as being seen as a way that God creates and a way that God saves and delivers. Talks about God's word going forth and doing those things. From the Greek side of things, their philosophers and their religious people kind of understood this idea of logos or or the word as being kind of a a mystical understanding of the universe um, and and this word kind of being the controller of the universe in some ways. And so uh, kind of of some heavy, confusing stuff maybe for you to keep in mind and remember. Uh, So so let's look at it from a a way that makes sense to us as a reader today. Why, Why would it make sense for us to see Jesus as God's word or as the word. When we think about words, we think about how words reveal our hearts and minds to others, right? Like when we begin to, to open our mouth and speak and talk, we are, we are pretty much giving people a, a, an understanding or insight into how we think and how we operate, the things that are important to us. And so words certainly reveal our hearts and our minds to others. Words are made up of letters, right? And Jesus is even described in the form of the alphabet when he's described as being the alpha and the omega, right? These are Greek letters, the beginning and the end of their alphabet. The the idea being here that Jesus is eternal, right? He's the beginning and the end, right? Like there is no time where Jesus ceases to exist. So Jesus is certainly the the revelation of of God's um, heart and God's mind. He, he is certainly the, the descriptor of, of what it means for God to be eternal, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Hebrews chapter one is another passage that, that shows us how God is using Jesus 
to reveal himself to mankind. In Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the father even identifies Jesus as a way for him to communicate through him to us who God is. Right? And so the word is a, is a way for us to understand Jesus basically as a, a means or an agent of God's communication to us about who he is. We can think about how God reveals his power through creation, right? We see this in Romans chapter 1, where God uses his creative presence in this world to communicate to everybody. We call it general revelation, right? That uh, things, certain things about God can be known, right? That, that he's, he's eternal, and that he is powerful, he's divine, is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. That all human beings have access to general revelation. They can look around in creation and see his, his divine attributes there, right? So through creation, we see God's power. Um, through the written word, through the Bible, we see, um, we see God's plans revealed, right? And then through Jesus, we get even further revelation because we get to see God's personality in play. We get to see who God is in a tangible human example that really resonates with us. We get to see how God acts in, in situations that we find ourselves in oftentimes. Um, and so through creation, God reveals to us who he is. Uh, through his written word, he reveals to us who he is. And then through the person of Jesus, he reveals to us who he is as well. Let me show you two passages in the Old Testament that give us an idea of how God's word functions and how we see Jesus functioning in similar ways. In Psalm chapter 33, Verse six says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. We see the, the, the power of God displayed in his word and in, in his um, speaking into existence, things that were made, right? So we see God's word creating in Psalm chapter 33, but then we fast forward into Psalms to uh, Psalm 107. It's not that, that God's word simply creates, but he also saves with his word. In Psalms 107, verse 20, it says he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Sent on his word and healed them, delivered them from their destruction. So that's that Old Testament piece that I was sharing with you that um, the Jewish people would have read this and understood what it meant for Jesus to be described as God's word, because that, that idea of God's word resonates with them in the ways that the word is personified in the Old Testament, that God's word creates and God's word heals and delivers and saves according to what the Old Testament has to say to us, okay? So we see here in John chapter 1 some important things about Jesus, his personhood, and, and the ways that he functions. And so we're going to review real quickly the things that we talked about last week in regards to John 1.1. Um, so specifically in your notes, we want to worship the eternally preexistent, distinct, and divinely equal Jesus. And these are, these are really important things to know about Jesus. And we've got to get our theology of Jesus right because it's distorted by other people around us, false religions, false teachers, okay? So when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the eternal Jesus, the one who is preexistent before the world began. We're talking about the distinct second person of the Trinity, who is divinely equal with God. For our kids, Jesus is eternal and equal with God. He's present before the beginning of the world. And it's not just in John 1, 1 that we see this. We see this later in the gospel of John, in John 17, 5. 
Jesus is praying to his heavenly father and he says, and now verse five, father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is referencing a time where he and the father were together prior to the beginning of time, prior to the beginning of this world. And so we understand Jesus to be eternal like God. He's eternal like God. And to, to really understand what the Greek is, is trying to say to us, the original language, the, the, the word, the, the verb usage here in the original language, this is how the translation really should read. It just doesn't make sense as much to us in English. But it should say this, in the beginning was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. The idea here is that he never started to be any of these things. Right? He never started to exist. He never started to be God. He never showed up and, and got with God the Father for the very first time. He's continually always been in this state. Okay, And so that's the way that the Greek is written. I told you last week, man, God's very intentional with the words that he picks and the words that he doesn't pick. Right? He, he's very specific in the words that he picks when he communicates who he is. He wants there to be no confusion about who he is. And so the way he communicates to us who Jesus is, he is the continual one. He's continually been here. He's continually been with God. He's continually been God, okay? So that idea carries through here in, in the words that God uses. Number two, he's distinct as God. We said this last week. He's distinct as God. So when we say God, we're, we're talking about the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, as a part of that, is equal in nature and being. He has the same character and the same quality as God the Father, Remember I told you last week, we spent a lot of times arguing for the fact that Jesus is God. But I told you we can flip that and say God is Jesus as well, right? So everything that we see about Jesus is a reflection of who God the Father is, right? We don't have God the Father who's one way in the Old Testament, and then we get lucky and get Jesus in the New Testament who's a way better version of God. That's not, that's not how it works. Jesus is God. He's an accurate reflection of who God the Father is all the time. God doesn't progressively become something different. He progressively reveals himself, right? But he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we say that about Jesus, we say that about God the Father as well, okay? But they have different roles that they play. And this is where we have to be careful that we don't blur the Trinity so much that we say what is true about what God the Father has done is also true about what God the Son has done. Um, there was a book that, that hit number one bestsellers several years back called The Shack, okay? You may have read it. You may not have read it. You may have strong opinions about it. You may have strong likes about it. One of the things that I think is very damaging about that book is that it portrays God the Father with holes in his hands as though he was crucified on the cross, right? And so in that book, you have this individual who's working through his understanding of who God is, and he encounters God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit throughout that book, right? Well, when he's engaging with God the Father, we have God the Father in human form, which is not true, right? God the Father's never taken on human form. That's Jesus, right? God the Father doesn't have holes in his hands. God the Father wasn't on the cross. God the Father was pouring out wrath upon the Son, okay? And so that's where, if we're not careful, we don't, we don't apply their roles in the same way to each other, right? Jesus is the person of the Trinity who came to die on the cross for us. Jesus is the one who's in bodily form. Jesus is the one who has the scars in his hands, okay? Not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, okay? So we have to keep, keep them properly distinct because that's exactly what we see here in the text. 
I told you last week that the ways that the Jehovah's Witnesses try to distort this is they try to, uh, they try to take advantage of the fact that that article, the, is left out of the original language here. So it, for them, they substitute the letter A in there. And so it reads, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, right? And so what we see here instead is that John has written this exactly how he has to write it for them to be distinct beings as far as persons. So we've got God the Father and God the Son. They're distinct but co-equal, all right? And it's the only way that John can write it. It's the only way that he can use the words that he had to write it in such a way that preserves their distinctness, but also keeps them co-equal uh, as one God. And the idea of him being uh, with God says he, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That with God aspect communicates uh, community, fellowship, and relationship that they enjoyed. All right, and then number three, we said last week, Jesus is equal with God. He's equal with God. He's distinct, but equal. The word does not by himself make up the entire Godhead. Nevertheless, the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead belongs also to him. All right, and so if this is true, that Jesus is God, he's equal with God, we've said this, then it means we have a tangible human example for understanding God. I love this quote by John MacArthur. He says, confusion about the deity of Christ is inexcusable because the biblical teaching regarding it is clear and unmistakable. Jesus Christ is the preexistent word who enjoys full face-to-face communion and divine life with the Father and is himself God. We don't want to be confused about this because I think the Bible is very clear in how we are to understand this. Okay, so we take all this here. Jesus is eternal, he's distinct, and he's equal. And it gives us an important implication here. He cannot be merely a philosopher or a prophet or a teacher or a good example. He's either divine or not. And if he is divine, he deserves our worship and demands our obedience. All right, and so that's where we can't just take him as we would any other teacher or any other philosopher or any other good example that, that we can see in history. He's divine, and that sets him apart if he really is. He claimed it. The Bible claims it. If he really is divine, then it changes the way we receive his teachings. Changes the way we receive his teachings. Um, because now they are coming from uh, one who is divine, then it necessitates that we not only worship him, but we obey his teachings as well. All right, and so we see that here in John 1. He was in the beginning with God. He's with him, and he is God himself. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All right, that moves us into verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So number two in our notes, trust the sovereign, sustaining, and intentionally creating Jesus. All right, so we saw him as the eternally preexistent, distinct, and divinely equal one. Now what I want us to see is that he's the sovereign, sustaining, and intentionally creating Jesus as well. And, and what does that mean for us? Why, why should we care about that? What does that mean for us on a daily basis? Why should you care about this tomorrow when you go to work? I want to help you see why him being this is so important to how we respond to things tomorrow at work. All right? For our kids, Jesus creates everything and has a purpose for it. Has a purpose for it. All right? Number one, Jesus is the source of all other origins. That's what we see here in verse three. All things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
We see this both positively and negatively in this verse. Positively, all things are made through him. Negatively, nothing's made without him. Okay, and so John's very intentional to make sure that everything's included here. All things that were made, made by Jesus. Nothing was made without Jesus making it. Okay, so kind of a a double emphasis there on the fact that everything finds its origin, everything finds its source of origin within Jesus. All right, and he creates with great wisdom. Not only is Jesus the great creator, but he creates with perfect wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. What what an important filter for us to think through when we think about the fact that Jesus creates everything. When we look around and see creation around us, God has applied his wisdom and his understanding in the ways that he has constructed things around us. There, There are no mistakes right? Now, we have to look around at creation and realize that we're in a fallen creation, right? So creation is not functioning the way that it was originally designed to. There's some fallenness to creation around us. But what's so important about that is that God remains absolutely in control of the fallenness as well, right? So God creates everything to function a certain way. Sin enters into the world, and by sin, death enters into the world, right? And so now we see things in a fallen state. We see things dying and decaying around us, but that has not thwarted God's control over it. So God creates it, but still remains absolutely in control of his creation, even though it is now not functioning the way that it was originally designed to function. So he's he's created with great wisdom, and he's created things with a specific purpose. Number two, he creates with great wisdom. And then number three, he creates for his purposes. He creates for his purposes. Colossians chapter one is another passage where we see the, the creative aspect of Jesus emphasized. Colossians chapter one, verse 16. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. So not only does God, not only does Jesus create everything, he creates everything for himself. Everything has a purpose and that purpose is tied to Jesus. We talk about this a lot in our football program with our guys. We want them to understand that they have been created by God and for God that their life has purpose because of the fact that God has created them with that purpose. And he gets to define the purpose. God gets to define the purpose for which we were created, right? If he's the, if he's the source of our origin, he gets to define why we're here. And he does that. He, he has designed us to be here for his glory, right? And so everything's designed, everything's created through Jesus. But not only is he the creator of everything, he's the one who gives purpose to everything as well. He creates everything for himself. Revelation chapter 4, 11 is another passage where we see the, the creative aspect of Jesus emphasized. That throne room scene in heaven, all these living creatures giving glory and honor to thanks to him. It says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Again, the idea here is that Jesus creates everything, but he creates it by his will, for himself, for a specific purpose. So he's the source of everything. He's applied great wisdom and understanding when he did create. He creates with specific purposes. And then he remains very involved in his creation, right? Like there's some false teachings that would say, yes, 
God kind of got everything started, kind of created it and got it moving, and then kind of stepped back and is just letting it unfold on its own. That's not what we see in Scripture. We see Jesus remaining very active in his creation, being very sovereign and in control of his creation. Back in Colossians chapter 1, where we just read, in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? He's sustaining everything. He's keeping everything moving in the directions that he wants it to be moving in. All right? Hebrews chapter 1, where we read earlier, in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we have all things being made by him, all things being made for him, and him upholding all things together for his purposes. What does that mean for us? Man, that means he, stay, he, he rescues us from a state of fear. Like, I don't have to be fearful about how things are unfolding around me. I don't have to. Because the one who created the things around me created them for specific purposes, and he is sustaining them and upholding them for his purposes, right? So from an implication standpoint, number four, he sustains every aspect of his creation. Number uh, Implication, because he created every detail and controls every detail, we can trust Jesus with every detail, Because he created every detail and because he controls every detail, we can trust Jesus with every detail. I mean, that means no matter what enters into your life tomorrow at work or within your family, no matter what surprises come tomorrow, right? We have to filter those things through a belief that Jesus creates everything. He creates everything for his purposes. He's directing all of his creation for his purposes. And what's the the good news for us is that he does it for the good of his children, right? It's one thing to say that Jesus controls everything for his purposes. That's not good news if he controls them for bad purposes, right? But Romans 8, 28 assures us that all things work together for the good of his children. So I don't have to be fearful about what tomorrow looks like. I don't have to be fearful about my job situation. I don't have to be fearful about my health situation. I don't have to be fearful about these things because I can rest knowing that the one who created it is still around to control it all. He's still around to control it all. And that brings great assurance to us. And and the quicker we can connect that truth to when we encounter circumstances, the better, right? It's it's one thing for us to have to be reminded about this stuff, you know, kind of well after the fact, after we've spent a lot of time worrying and stressing and fretting and, and spewing it all over social media and then having to go back and correct and edit and change because we, we haven't filtered that through what we know to be true. Right? We want to connect this as closely as possible to when we are going through these circumstances so that we don't have these prolonged periods where, where there is stress and worry and fear, and then we have to have people kind of come in and redirect us back to what we know to be true. Man, as we grow spiritually, we want to lessen the amount of time that we spend in that state of fear and, and stress and anxiety to the point where things are happening, but boom, I remember Jesus is in control right here right? Like Jesus created this and Jesus is sustaining this and Jesus is directing this for his purposes. I don't have to fear this, okay? Because he created every detail, controls every detail, we can trust him with every detail, right? He's, he's like the, the mechanic that built the car, knows the car. That's the guy you want working on your car, right? Like he knows exactly where to tinker with it when it's not working as it should be working, like, we have to pay big bucks to people who know where to tinker with our cars because we don't know where to, where to do that, right? Like, like, the actual process of fixing the car may not take that long. 
and the parts may not cost that much, but you get the bill back and, and the bill's exorbitant. And you're just like, man, why am I paying this much? Because you don't know where to fix it. Like you don't know where to go to fix the, the part on your car that's messed up. Man, Jesus not only built the car, not only knows all the intricate workings of the car, right? He stays on top of it and directs it. Like he's the ultimate mechanic here. He knows exactly what's going on. He designed it, he created it, and he's moving it forward for his purposes. All right, so we can trust the sovereign, sustaining, and intentionally creating Jesus. Everything that comes into our life has a purpose. Every single thing that comes into our life has a purpose. Even the stuff that's not desirable. Even the stuff that we didn't plan, the stuff that we would have never chosen, it all has specific purposes for us. Good purposes. And the way that we can stay assured of that is by staying in God's will. Right? Because the moment we step out of God's will, if we're a child of God, we can still trust that things are coming into our life for good purposes as far as they may be designed to bring us back to God from a disciplinary standpoint. Right? I was uh, talking with one of my teachers who's going through a divorce, and she's come to me um, on several occasions just to, to get counsel on what do I do next? How do I respond to what my husband's doing? Right? And I keep counseling her, do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do what you know is right, because if you're doing the right thing, you remain in God's favor. Right? And so you can trust this is, divorce is not something you picked. The, the, the things that are coming with this divorce, you never would have chosen but God can use these things for good purposes and not for disciplinary purposes. As long as you remain in the position where you are doing the right thing and you're doing everything that you know to do that's right, man, you can just keep trusting that God is bringing this stuff to you and he's going to turn it for good. He's going to turn it for good, that it's not discipline towards you. It's in some ways, in, in some purposes, in ways that you may not fully ever understand designed for your good, right? And so we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear the things that come our way. We can trust that God creates God sustains, God controls, God works and mush, pu pushes everything for his good purposes, all right? And then lastly, number three, respond to the life-giving and darkness-dispelling Jesus. This is the last piece that we see here in, in John 1, 1 through 5. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For our kids, Jesus shines like a light and gives life to us. Now, we're going to see these two themes of life and light. I mean, it just runs through the Gospel of John. Right? We're going to keep coming back to these ideas of Jesus being a light and Jesus being the life giver. It's introduced to us here right at the beginning. Now, let's think in terms of physical and spiritual. Right? Because I told you John 1, man, it just, it just, it just echoes Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so think back to Genesis chapter 1. What do we see there? We see light and life right there at the very beginning, right? We see God speaking. We see him speaking into existence light, one of the first things that he creates there, right? Let there be light, and there was light, right? We've got darkness, and then light starts to dispel that darkness, right? And then life starts to spring forth because of the light, right? We know that light is necessary for life to really be sustained, we need life, or we need light for plants to grow. They, they rely upon that, right? And so as light comes forth, life starts to spring forth from a, from a, from a physical standpoint. But that's also true from a spiritual standpoint that we're going to see. Jesus shines light into our hearts where there's darkness, and then spiritual life starts to spring up in our hearts as well. 
So he's creative in both aspects. One, he's creating for the very first time in Genesis where he is speaking light into existence and then life is springing forth. Now he comes back in the New Testament where he has to recreate life, where he's fixing things. He speaks light, shines light into our hearts and brings forth spiritual life where there wasn't life previously. All right, and so um, that's what we see here with Jesus. He creates life to overcome death and he shines light to overcome darkness. Let's see both of these things. Jesus creates life and overcomes death. He's the source of life, both physical and spiritual, as the self-existent one. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 25. We'll read there. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He's talking about two different things there. He's talking about a physical and a spiritual type of resurrection. He says, an hour is coming, and it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's the spiritual resurrection he's defining there. He says, there's a time that's coming, and in fact, it's here right now where people are going to hear, people are going to hear the Word of God, and they are going to live. Hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. That's that spiritual resurrection where where God's Word goes forth into our hearts, We hear it, we respond to it because of conviction and spiritual life results. But then he says, down the road, there's coming a time, an hour, when all who are in the tombs are going to hear his voice, and they're going to come back to life, some to resurrection of life, some to resurrection of judgment. And how does Jesus get to do all this? Well, he's the self-existent one, it says here. It says that he's been granted to have life in himself. Jesus isn't existing because somebody else keeps him existing. He's the self-existent one. Our, our existence is completely tied to Jesus, right? Without him, we don't exist. Jesus is the self-existent one. John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The enemy comes, sin comes, it comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes with life and he grants it to us in an abundant way. First John, also written by our same author, First John chapter 5, verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In our discussion groups this morning, you may or may not have had a chance to talk about the, the darkness aspect of prior to being with Jesus and then the light that comes um, with being with Jesus. But in Ephesians chapter 2, we get a great picture of what life looks like without Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? So what are some of the ways that we're described there? We're described as being dead. We're described as being enslaved to sin, enslaved to our passions, enslaved to our desires, 
almost like animals that, that can only react to the things that their body tells them to do, right? It says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. Um, we're, we're living according to the passions of our flesh. We're carrying out the desires of the body. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, verse 4, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Life before Christ, life after Christ. And that looks different for all of us, depending when we come to Christ, right? I got the, the chance to share my testimony this week uh, during Missions Emphasis Week at Trinity. And so all of, we had a bunch of teachers that kind of shared what it looked like to come to Jesus because we wanted our kids to see this has looked different for all of us. And it came at different ages for us under different circumstances, but we all came to Jesus in the same way, right? Um, and so... For me, man, life before Christ wasn't very long, right? Like I had about five years maybe before I really connected the gospel with, with how that looked for me and came to Christ. So I, mean, I didn't have a whole lot of time to really delve into to a lot of darkness in, in my life prior to, prior to Jesus. But I shared with our kids, man, I knew I was a sinner. I knew it to the best of my abilities. I was still falling short of the standards that God had set for me. But, but the, the greatness of my testimony is, is that I know without Jesus, man, I would have been in some of the darkest places probably. Like I know, I know my flesh, I know my fleshly tendencies, that if I don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of me from the age of five on, life looks way different. The things that I'm involved in, the people that I spend time with, the places that I go, the things that I do would have looked drastically different. So people are saved out of those type of situations and I fully believe I'm saved out of that as well. Even though I didn't actually experience it, had God not stepped in at the age of five, that's absolutely where I would have gone, right? Like I would have been Ephesians 2, I would have been deep in darkness, enslaved to my passions, enslaved to my desires. So my testimony is just as great in the sense that God saved me from those things before I ever got to those things, because I would have not saved myself from those things. I would have fully indulged in those things had the Holy Spirit not been sealing me for the day of redemption, okay? So Jesus gives life, grants life, pulls us out of those situations or protects us from those situations. When we think of death, physical death means that we are separated from our, our soul and bodies are separated, right? So when we go to funerals, we, we are, we are um, reflecting upon death because we see a body here and we know that body is absent from the spirit. They're separated. When we talk about spiritual death, not about spiritual death. We're talking about the separation of soul and God. That's what spiritual death looks like, all right? And Jesus rescues us from both those states. He, he brings our spiritual state back together. He brings us to connection with God. We see Jesus overcoming physical death constantly, and, and we'll, we'll see some of that in the, in the Gospels. But I was, I was thinking and reflecting, and one of the commentators made a, such a great point. When you look at some of the resurrections that Jesus performs, you've got a broad scope of people who had just died and then people who've been dead for a while, right? Jairus's daughter is an example of, of a little girl who had died and she had just died not very long ago 
to the point that when Jesus shows up, like there's still commotion about the fact that she has just died and he raises her to life. You see Lazarus, who's been dead for days, to the point that his family is kind of embarrassed about the idea of the tombstone being rolled away because they're fearful of how bad it's going to smell and how offensive it's going to be. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead too. And he doesn't need any more power to do it. Like it's not less power needed for Jairus' daughter, but a whole lot more power needed for Lazarus, right? He just raises people from the dead. And the commentator made the point, man, when we talk about the spiritual resurrection, you have some people like me who are kind of like Jairus' daughter who I've been dead in my sins, but not for real long, right? Like only about five years of my life and Jesus raised me to spiritual life. There's others of us who have people in our life, those people have been dead for a long time, right? Like they've, they've grown up and they're adults and they're on the back end of adulthood and they've been dead for a long time. And their stench is far greater because they've been dead for a long time. And to us, it looks like, man, it's going to take a whole lot more power to save that person than the five-year-old kid at church. And that's just not the case, right? Like Jesus has the maximum amount of power to save both. And he saves both types of people. He raises both types of people in the gospels, those that were just dead for a little bit and those that have been dead for a long time. And he does it from a, from a spiritual side too. He saves people who have been born into sin and have, have not really gotten too deep into sin. He rescues those people and saves them. And then he also rescues people who have been dead for a long time in their sins. And, they're, and they're, f- they're fully described here in Ephesians. And he saves those people too. He creates life and he overcomes death, both physically and spiritually. And then number two, he shines light and overcomes darkness. He shines light and overcomes darkness. And we'll wrap up with this. Now, uh, in John 1, 5, my translation says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Does anybody have a different translation for overcome it? Some translations are different. Yep, some translations say that, that the darkness has not comprehended it, which is almost like two different things there, right? Like one, you have the, this picture of darkness trying to overcome light and can't. The other is you've got darkness over here that just doesn't understand the light, right? So, so why are there two different translations? Good translations, good Bible translations, but translated differently. Well, the reason there's two different translations is that the word can be translated both ways, right? So when you look back into the Greek and you're trying to take this Greek word and put it into English, it can go both ways. It can be that the light or the darkness did not understand the light or did not comprehend the light. It can also be translated that it did not overcome the light, right? The only other time this word is used in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. What is, did you have a different translation for John 1 in yours, Terry? So what is the translation here for John 12? What does it say? In John 12, 35, walk while you have the light, lest darkness do what? Overtake you, okay? That's the only other time this word is used in the gospel, okay? So probably the better translation is to read it as the darkness did not overcome it, but Terry doesn't need to throw her translation away, okay? Like that's not a bad translation because think about it, right? So think about it. If, what, what do we typically do with things that we don't understand, Typically, things that we don't understand scare us, and typically we want to try to like, get rid of them or, or get away from them, right? 
Uh, I'm a sucker for alien movies. Like, I, I love movies about aliens. I love movies about aliens coming and invading the earth. Almost every time you watch a movie about alien ships coming into the atmosphere, it creates fear and like the world wants to react and like fight and like get rid of this stuff because we're afraid they're going to fight us first. If you're like me too, well, not, this is not me. There are some people that are like this. Like first time they see something on their body that looks foreign, like they immediately freak out and think this thing is like serious, right? Like you're like, I've got skin cancer. And then you look at it and you're like, that's just an ink mark, right? Like there's some people that like immediately think, I don't understand this, right? And so I want to overcome it and get rid of it. That's, that's why this is not a bad translation, because what we see, it's really both words are true, because in John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil, right? So it's absolutely true. The darkness didn't understand the light, right? Didn't want the light, didn't like the light, didn't comprehend it. And then its reaction was to try to overcome it, right? It's what the Pharisees tried to do. They didn't like it, didn't comprehend it, confused by it. Let's crucify it, right? Like they didn't understand it, so they wanted to react to it and try to overcome it. So both translations are fine and appropriate because it's both exactly what the darkness tried to do. The darkness did not comprehend it, didn't like it, and wanted to try to overcome it. The encouraging part to us is that it could not. It could not overcome it, right? It could not dispel the light. Darkness could not vanquish the light, according to this passage. Light is still shining. Again, the verb usage here is the, the ongoing continual state. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it from a past tense standpoint. In its best efforts, the darkness failed. Jesus rescues us from a state of darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talking about this spiritual aspect of how God rescues us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There's that idea of not comprehending it. Who is the image of God? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Man, it's a reminder that we don't save ourselves, that ultimately God has to shine that light into our hearts, awaken us spiritually to respond to the gospel. Jesus does that. He shines into our hearts and rescues us from that state of darkness. And then when we get saved, it leads us to walk in light. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. So same author, so it's important to see the same ideas carried over. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The idea there is that when we come to Christ, we get saved, light has shined into our life, and we start walking in the light. We start walking in the light. And what does that look like? Well, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, it changes the way that we interact with each other. 
At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Man, salvation radically changes us. We start to walk in the light. And ultimately, it really leads us to becoming a type of light as well in John chapter 12. So we talk about Jesus being the light of the world. Well, well, Jesus has passed on some of that responsibility to us now, now that he has left the world from a physical standpoint. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light, right? So we become a similar type of light when we come to Jesus. We're reflecting that light. We're becoming a type of light in the world, in the darkness. You can probably think of it in terms of, of how the sun functions, right? The sun is this, this bright light. The moon reflects that light. So even when Jesus is not here, that great light is not here, there's still light in the midst of darkness at nighttime. And, and we reflect the light of Jesus as sons of light if we've come to him in salvation. So the implication for us, gospel is good news that no longer have to wander about in darkness and despair of sin. If I have truly been saved and rescued from darkness with new life, my life ought to look as different as night and day. My life ought to look as different as night and day because I've been rescued from the night and I've been saved for the day. And again, you may say, well, Adam, I was saved when I was five. And I don't know that my life looked that drastically different. But if you probably paused and reflected a little bit, you would say, my life looks way different than it would if I didn't have Jesus right now. The things that I'm doing, things I'm involved in, the things that are important to me, my life does look night and day different than if I didn't have Jesus. I was saved at five, but if I was saved later in life, life would have looked way different. All right, so worship the eternally preexistent, distinct, and divinely equal Jesus. Trust the sovereign, sustaining, and intentionally creating Jesus. Respond to the life-giving and darkness-dispelling Jesus. Amen. For most of us in this room, we've done that. But let it be a reminder that those that we love most that have not yet responded to him, he has the power to do that. We keep praying and trusting that he will. All right? He raised Jairus' daughter. He raised Lazarus. Both were dead. Both needed him. And he came to rescue both. He can do that for the people that are closest to us as well. Application for us. I want to leave you with three questions. Because a lot of this you may say, heard it, heard it, know it, know it. Three questions that I want you to kind of filter. Everything that we've talked about to see if it's, actually, if it's actually doing anything in your life. Number one, is my theology about Jesus solidified so that I can share him faithfully with others? Have you... Have you understood Jesus as revealed in his word in such a way where you can dialogue with somebody and talk confidently about who Jesus is as revealed in his word, or does that still need some work? Because you ought to be able to sit and talk with, about Jesus with somebody. When we were at um, our steak dinner the other night with the guys, Brody had spoken, and they kind of they posed the question at the end, how many of you would love the opportunity to talk to somebody here tonight about how to follow Jesus? Raise your hand. So you know, people raised their hand, and then the next comment was, if you don't know Jesus, you can look around and see there's a whole lot of people that would love to talk to you tonight about that. And, and it's people who said, man, I, I, can, I feel like I could do that. 
I would love the chance to do that. We all need to be at a point where we can talk faithfully about Jesus because we've understood him through his word. Is my rapid reaction becoming more and more to trust him in the midst of life circumstances? Talked about closing that gap, that, that time of fear and despair and struggle. Are, are we closing that gap to where when I face things that I don't like, I, I'm, I'm very quickly trusting Jesus in the midst of that? Or do I have to be reminded about it? Do I spend several days or weeks or months before I come back around to realizing he's sovereign, he's in control, he's got good purposes? Man, we want the rapid reaction, that, that closing of the gap to where things come into my life, and I'm immediately filtering it through the fact that Jesus is in control. And then lastly, is my life reflecting light into my current context of family, work, and hobbies? If we're saved, we're called sons of light, meaning that we are now supposed to go into those dark areas and shine light into those areas as well. That's within our families. That's within our workplace, right? Like we shouldn't be the the, the source of grumbling and complaining in our workplace. We shouldn't be the source of backbiting and gossip and slander towards our boss, right? Like we should be the ones shining light into those areas. We should be the ones who are creating an environment of thankfulness and gratefulness in our workplaces, uh, 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 an attitude of submission and obedience to our authorities. We should be shining light into the dark areas. And if we're not, then we may have heard John 1, 1 through 5 a ton of times, but it hasn't done what it needs to do in our life. Are we shining light into the current context of family, work, hobbies? Those of you that, that have a network of connections because of things that you're involved in or that your kids are involved in. These are places where we act and function as sons of light. Family worship questions. What are some ways we are in darkness before we come to Jesus? Again, another way for us to talk with our kids, especially if they have yet to make a profession of faith. What are some ways that we are in darkness before we come to Jesus? And then number two, what does it look like for us to walk in the light as Christians? And this is a great discussion for those of us that have kids who have recently come to Jesus and are still trying to figure out what does it mean to, to be a Christian and what should my life now look like that I've been rescued from darkness to light. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that You've been very clear in your revelation of Jesus. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be a real-world, tangible example to us of who you are. God, we're thankful that we can take great comfort in, and hope in the fact that, that Jesus is the great creator of this world. And that not only does he create it, he sustains it and moves it for his purposes. And so, God, I pray that we would more and more filter our circumstances through those truths that when we face things that we would have never chosen, that we would keep in mind that you work things for good purposes for your children. God, I thank you that, that you sent Jesus to function as a great um, light bearer and a great life giver, that for those of us that are believers today, you, you rescued us from darkness and delight, that you rescued us from spiritual death into spiritual life. I mean, God, we know that that brings great hope for future physical things, that we will be resurrected to a physical eternal life as well. 
and be spared from a physical, eternal darkness. God, help us to be uh, light bearers in the context that you've placed us in. God, we want to see people rescued from darkness into light. God, I know that there are family members that are represented here that, that are not part of your kingdom yet. There are co-workers represented here um, that are not members of your kingdom yet. And God, we all know people in, in our hobbies and uh, other contexts of life that are not part of your kingdom yet. God, help us to be people who faithfully shine light into those situations. Help us to be faithful to take the real, genuine, Bible-revealed Jesus to those people. We thank you and, and praise you for the things that you're teaching us. God, help it not to just simply fill our heads, but to change our hearts and to shape our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.